welcome to the First Lutheran Church located at 512 South Kale Avenue in Miles City with pastoral services provided by Pastor Steve Rice. The Holy Gospel according to John, the 12th chapter. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for three hundred denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you for being here this morning as we bring uh, an end to our observance of Lent together with a reading from John's Gospel. Okay. John the Beloved, who provided so many other fascinating contributions to the New Testament, uh, culminating in the book Revelation. John, sometimes referred to simply as the fourth gospel among theologians, the fourth gospel, in the fourth gospel, without even using his name. Uh, The other three gospels are often collectively referred to as the synoptic gospels, okay, the synoptic gospels, because they have a shared and common sort of calendar of events, if you will, an ordering of things that took place in the life of Christ. They had a synchronized vision or view, sin optic. Okay. Optics, sin synchronized, optics view, synoptic. So the three that see things in the same happening in the same time patterns. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then there's John, the beloved. He writes for a different purpose. He writes, in fact, to, uh, uh, to bring forth uh, the story of this one that he loved so passionately. Well, in today's account, we find ourselves the Saturday before not just the Passover, but the Passover. The Saturday before Passover, likely 33 A.D. A number of threads of information come together, converge to give us to think that that was uh, the year of the crucifixion, 33 A.D. But days before, Jesus' tumultuous entry into the holy city, Jerusalem, was to take place. The religious authorities, though, as we know, as we have been reading, are closing in, are closing in. 
And at the very least, it had been decided. Jesus was to be arrested if he came into the city. Kept out of sight during the Passover. For you see, there would just be too many people, crowds streaming into Jerusalem for the religious authorities to risk a confrontation between Jesus' followers, some of which were the Sicarii, the zealots, so named for the small knives that they carried for purposes of assassination of Romans and Roman soldiers. They were among Jesus' followers. A risk they could not take of a confrontation between Jesus' followers and the always irritable Romans. Moreover, amidst rumors that he had been raised from the dead, the scribes and Pharisees had decided that Lazarus too was to be arrested if found within the city, and if possible, Lazarus was to die again. Indeed, if the next few hours worked out according to their view of things, some planned it, it would not only be the end of Lazarus, but also the end of Jesus as well, a problem solved. You see, Lazarus's particular crime, though, was, was simply that he who should have been dead was still alive. The story of that miraculous thing, of his miraculous rising at the hands of Jesus, just too powerful, too persuasive, too risky for the political status quo that existed in Jerusalem. In the estimation of the scribes and Pharisees, a delicate balance had to be maintained between God and Rome. While they acknowledged God had the power to damn you in eternity, every Jew knew that the Romans had not only the power but the inclination to crucify you in the here and now. And so it was under this cloud that Mary and Martha prepared the main meal of the day, the evening meal, for Jesus and his disciples. Amidst brief looks and silent glances, as Martha was serving Jesus and he and Lazarus reclining at the table, sometime during the meal, Mary did something unexpected. She did not serve, open and serve, an expensive bottle of wine, but rather she broke open a flask that contained the heavily perfumed ointment, nard. Nard was as rare as it was expensive, you see, uh, about a half liter in quantity of this product of northern India cost the equivalent of a man's yearly wages. The house quickly filled with a mixture then of perfume and tension as Mary rubbed and soothed the softening ointment on Jesus' weary feet, the excess of which was applied to the length of her own raven-colored hair. In the midst of this scene, John recalled that Judas exploded why was not this sold for 300 denarii, a year's wages? Think of the good it could do for the poor. <laughs> oh, the self-righteousness of the guilty. 
Judas was not concerned, John says, about the poor. In fact, writing some decades later, John had not entirely forgiven the memory of Judas, for John reminds us as we read the fourth gospel that it was Judas who was about to betray Jesus, and furthermore, Judas had been a thief all along, John writes, charging that Judas used to steal from the disciples' treasury. Now, Judas's eruption prompted a quick response from Jesus. Rather than a reflective or insightful correction, Jesus issued a sharp rebuke. Leave her alone. The form of Jesus' words in the Greek making it clear this was a command, not a suggestion. Knowing what awaited him in Jerusalem, Jesus went on to say, and she bought this for my burial. But then he went on to further explain and address Judas's complaint. And he reminded Judas, <laughs> he reminds us all, you always have the poor with you, but you're not always going to have me. With the Passover six days away, as I considered this text, I couldn't help but wonder if, just maybe, if it was at that table, that scene, where our Lord first conceived the idea of the sacrament that would forever communicate his presence to his disciples both then and forevermore. Jesus linked the Passover table with his abiding presence and where that presence would be communicated. The elements, they would be bread and wine. The Lord's table would be where both saints and sinners would always be welcome. A table often richly set, but sparsely stocked. A table where just a fraction of bread and a sip of wine would transport the church, his disciples, across time and space into his presence, the presence of the one in whose name the church always gathers. Clearly, the Lord's Supper was instituted at the Passover meal. But I think Jesus knew before that meal precisely what he was going to do and to say, and I cannot help but wonder if this might be the genesis of that. In the 13th century, it was the uh, Italian-born thinker and philosopher of the church, Thomas Aquinas, who would go on to offer an explanation of how it might be that Jesus could be present in the sacrament we call Holy Communion, the Eucharist. Aquinas reflected and explained the Lord's presence in terms of what would come to be called transubstantiation. Okay, transubstantiation. The substance changed. That is, the substance of bread and wine 
were themselves changed into the substance of Christ's body and blood and were no longer bread and wine at all. By the 16th century, the Reformation, Aquinas' thoughts, his understanding, bifurcated, went into two different directions. The followers of Martin Luther came to explain Christ's presence and Holy Communion as Christ's real presence, in quotes. Real presence. That is, without losing their external and obvious properties, both bread and wine, through the sacramental union and sacred usage, became the true body and blood of Jesus Christ. Opposing this understanding, other reformers rejected both transubstantiation and real presence, sometimes called consubstantiation. With increasing emphasis being placed upon one's own personal experience, Holy Communion became for those, for them, a memorial of something long past, but nothing more. The celebration of the Eucharist as part of the Mass became less frequent amongst those. The element of wine even replaced with juice. Rather than seeing Christ coming to the church through this means of grace, latter emphasis was placed upon uh, priority of one's individual entering into Christ's presence through personal experience or decisions. Very little's changed in 500 years. The church finds itself in one of three places in its understanding. And as Jesus observed, the poor are still among us, aren't they? But we see Jesus no more, not as the disciples saw him at table. And yet the church continues to confess that he still comes to us and that he is received in, with, and under the bread and wine that communicates his abiding presence to us. The church continues to observe Jesus' command, do this in remembrance of me. But in a profound way, not in some vague nostalgic way, as for example when we celebrate Thanksgiving every year and remember the pilgrims. It's not like that at all. Rather, when bread and wine are employed for sacred use, and Christ's words remembered. The bonds of time and space are loosed. And the church finds itself once more in his very presence, where he is both host and feast. And perhaps, perhaps, there might just be a whiff of nard in the air. Distant shouts of Hosanna heard, perhaps the crack of a whip, 
or the thud of a hammer heavy upon nails. Mournful cries followed by darkness. I cannot help but wonder, just maybe, it might have been such things as these as were on Jesus' mind when he felt that sudden coolness of, of ointment perfumed nard upon his weary feet and looked down to see the deep anxiety in Mary's eyes as she looked upon his face and wondered what comes next. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this production of the First Lutheran Church. We welcome you to visit us in person at 512 Kale Avenue. You can also find us on Facebook at First Lutheran Church, Miles City, Montana, and email us at flc at midrivers.com.